Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. It is my pleasure to talk to Adam Thier today, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where he specializes in innovation, entrepreneurship, the internet, and free speech issues, with a particular focus on the public policy concerns surrounding emerging technologies. My listeners have heard me reference Adam's work many times on this podcast, so it's about time that I have a conversation with him myself, or with him. (laughs) Um, Adam is single-handedly responsible for reviving the concept of permissionless innovation. In fact, he wrote a book by that exact title, which I highly recommend. And now he's recently put out a new super creative and provocative book called Evasive Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance, How Innovation Improves Economies and Governments. Welcome, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. Before I start, I want to ask you a question that I ask all my guests. What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? I would say that it's technological innovation is the fundamental driver of improvements in human well-being over time. And that is an overlooked fact by many people who are often focused on politics or some other aspect of our economy or society. But at the end of the day, what really moves the needle in terms of improving human welfare over the long haul, it's technological innovation. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. Well, we're going to be talking about the policy aspect of it. So it's kind of a mix of the two. Um, So in 2014, you wrote an essay at Cato where You ask the all-important question of why economic growth happens in some societies, but it doesn't happen in others. In the essay, you conclude that a significant yet often overlooked factor is the role that's played by values, quote, cultural attitudes, social norms, and political pronouncements in influencing opportunities for entrepreneurialism, innovation, and long-term growth, end quote. Can you explain what you mean by that? Absolutely. In that essay, which was uh, on, on of the title "Embracing a Culture of Permissionless Innovation," I attempted to outline uh, an answer to the question of why economic growth occurs in some societies but not in others. This is a an issue, a, a mystery of sorts that many economists and political scientists have studied for many, many decades and centuries. And there's varying answers, but. At the end of the day, what I think the answer is, is it comes back to the fact that some countries and cultures got their innovation culture right. And by innovation culture, I mean the combination of policies and attitudes towards creative undertakings by human beings. Now, that sounds simplistic or silly, but the reality is, is that innovation throughout history 
and creativity were sometimes frowned upon depending on the form that they took. And the uh, economist and political scientist Deirdre McCloskey famously notes in her histories of technological innovation that there was a time that the very term innovation was a form of heresy, that people thought it was heretical to basically go out and do innovative things. Now, why would that be? The reason it is it was the case was because innovation by its very nature entails change. And change when it entails a disruption of existing norms, institutions, professions, businesses, cultural things of importance can be upsetting to many people because some people, many people in fact, like the status quo or they think there's something important about it or even sacred about it. And what innovation does is says, well, it's time to change. We're going to actually change the way we do things, not just business, but many other things. And so I tried to get at this in my essay and say like, why did some countries and cultures grow? They accepted that change is the answer. Whereas others said, no, we're going to take steps to preserve the status quo, whatever that may be. And so this can be, you go all the way throughout time and flash forward to today, still can be seen to be a driver of why some countries have higher economic growth and greater prosperity than many others, because they ultimately resist technological change. I want to go back to the work of McCloskey, the great economic historian, who I interviewed in this podcast a few weeks ago. McCloskey doesn't like the term capitalism, and she prefers the term innovationism because it emphasizes the real driver of the explosion of wealth during the great enrichment. Of course, institutions such as property rights, non-corrupt courts, and the rule of law played an important role in the explosion of innovation that we witnessed during that time. But McCloskey argues that what really kicked innovation into high gear was the change in attitude toward innovation and entrepreneurship. I assume you agree with her. What are your thoughts on this? I agree wholeheartedly with it. I mean, as uh, as you've already indicated, I think Deirdre gets it exactly right in, in trying to say we need to shift our language and uh, capitalism gets a bad name with a lot of people, but innovation is something more people, I think, can understand and accept, especially today in a world of abundance uh, given to us by innovation. However, the term innovationism is kind of a mouthful, and I have a feeling it's going to be hard for that one to catch on. Um, and as much as I'd be behind it, uh, I don't think it'll probably work. But but she's exactly right. She and others like uh, economic historians like Joel Mokur and others, they, they talk about this debate between like institutions and attitudes. And to me, it's not really as much of a debate as Deirdre makes it out to be in her work. But what they mean by that is that for the longest time, economists, political scientists, historians, and others have studied how institutions or institutional policies drove economic growth and change. And I think there's absolutely truth to that. There's no doubt that the things that you mentioned, whether it be property rights or a good court system, the rule of law, things like this are extraordinarily important. But what Deirdre really tries to stress, as well as Joe Mokur and their work and their histories, is that ultimately it was cultural attitudes 
that really changed everything. That you did indeed need those good institutions, but you also needed people, especially policymakers, to have open minds. They needed to be open to the idea of change. And over a very long uh, set of books, uh, Deirdre proves this, I think, conclusively, that attitudes were probably the single fundamental driver of uh, the openness to innovation and to capitalism. Those cultural attitudes, especially among elites and policymakers, did change just enough to unlock that sort of entrepreneurial spirit and creativity that was always percolating there among the masses. Whereas in other countries and cultures, it was still bottled up by policies and other attitudes. But this debate between institutions and attitudes uh, can get a little heated at time between these nerdy economists and political scientists, mm-hmm. but I think it's a little bit overplayed. I think the, the, at the end of the day, all these things matter. I think Deirdre's just trying to put a little bit more emphasis on the attitude side of things. In the same essay from 2014, you wrote, quote, for innovation and growth to blossom, entrepreneurs need a clear green light from policymakers that signals a general acceptance of risk-taking, especially risk-taking that challenges existing business models and traditional ways of doing things, end quote. That disposition is what you call permissionless innovation. So can you define permissionless innovation and why is it so important? Can you give us some examples? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so the term permissionless innovation, I should note, I did not coin that term or come up with it. I, I borrowed it from uh, really the language of Silicon Valley when it came about in the United States 20 years ago. And I don't really know who first uttered that phrase or coined it. Um, I've been trying to find the answer to that for the longest time, but I don't know. But I really like the term because it's very descriptive. Um, we want more innovation and we want more innovation of a permissionless nature. Um, what does that mean? It means that we don't want to have innovation be endlessly permissioned with requirements, red tape, other types of preemptive restraints on entrepreneurial and innovative activities. And that really means we have to be willing to accept a lot of experimentation, a lot of trial and error experimentation and risk-taking, because they're the fundamental drivers of that sort of innovative spark. When I was, when I was uh, in high school, when I was your age, I went to uh, uh, Catholic school, and one of my Jesuit priests introduced me one day to the works of St. Thomas Aquinas, who was a great philosopher. And I'm going to paraphrase a famous quote from St. Thomas Aquinas that he taught me, which is that Aquinas once said that if the sole goal of a captain was to make sure that their ship never sank, then the captain would never leave harbor. They'd never take their ship out of port. And that's true, but that's not the sole goal of a captain. (laughs) A captain wants to brave the high seas, including the dangers of the seas, in order to seek some sort of reward. It may be monetary or it may just be like respect. Like, look at me, I sailed an ocean. The bottom line is that captains understand you have to take a certain amount of risk in order to get some reward, whatever that reward may be. Well, that's the exact same spirit or attitude that drives innovation and then therefore drives economic growth. The key to unlocking it is to make sure that we accept that sort of experimentation and risk-taking and we don't excessively permission it 
with sort of what I call mother may I requirements. Like, may I please go do this or do that? Well, certainly we need some rules. I'm not an anarchist. I believe we do need some constraints. But for the most part, we want to at first give the benefit of the doubt to the person engaged in these creative acts and hope that they are actually going to learn something from their experiments and they're hopefully going to produce some innovations. And it's only through that constant iteration of that process, going back and forth, going again and again, trial and error. And yes, there's a lot of errors in trial and error, but through the trials, we get rewards. We get societal learning and we ultimately get economic progress. Permissionless innovation, I argue, is the key to making sure we get more and more of that throughout history. In your book, you argue that instead of having permissionless innovation, instead of having risk-taking available as an option, really, that what we have is a sort of precautionary principle norm that is favored by public officials, where any sort of threat, any low probability, worst case scenario is a good enough excuse for officials to stifle technological development. Can you give us some examples of when this has been the case? And how much of innovation in the U.S. today is actually completely permissionless? I mean, do you have an estimate of that? And how do other countries look against the U.S. in terms of permissionless innovation? Yeah, great question. So first and foremost, let's define what we mean by the precautionary principle. It refers to the idea that new innovations should generally be curtailed or even disallowed until the developers of those technologies can prove that they will not cause any potential harms to individuals, groups, uh, organizations, cultural norms, or even existing laws and traditions. And the permission, the permissionless innovation ethos, of course, is the antithesis of this. It basically says, no, we should presume that the benefits of trial and error experimentation are better than curtailing these things. The problem with the precautionary principle is that it means we're going to base all of our policy upon worst case scenario thinking, that only the worst cases will come about. And what I argue in my book on permissionless innovation and then my new book on evasive entrepreneurialism is that the problem with the precautionary principle is, is that if you base all public policy upon worst case thinking, it means that many best cases can never come about that it's only by allowing that sort of experimentation in a permissionless fashion that we get that important type of learning from that trial and error process that drives progress. So let's give some examples in the real world of permissionless innovation versus the precautionary principle. Well, the example I draw upon from most recent memory um, is the internet. And one of the things I do when I go to lecture at law schools and philosophy programs and history courses Um, about my books is I asked the audience uh, how many people can name a leading major information modern technology company that is headquartered in Europe anywhere and I don't get any answers people really struggle every once in a while somebody will say rightly Spotify well that's a good answer Um, but that's not really the biggest of the tech companies out there some people will say something like Skype Well, not many people use Skype anymore, but Skype's actually owned by American companies, even though it started in Europe. And then after that, they really, really struggle. And then you say, well, just name me some big tech companies. And then boom, they just start naming them Apple, 
Amazon, Google, Facebook, Twitter, so on and so forth. And isn't it interesting that all of them, without fail, are emanating, uh, are headquartered in the United States? That has to tell us something. That's an important story. And so the key to understanding why that story uh, is so, that Europe suffers and doesn't have any leading tech companies, but America has all of them and their household names across the globe, is permissionless innovation. Those companies benefited from a very sort of light-touch regulatory environment. There were certainly rules and regulations here in the United States, but there weren't preemptive constraints on digital innovators in the internet and e-commerce world. And that's why they flourished. In Europe, by contrast, almost as soon as they appeared, they were hit with many different types of data regulations and privacy rules and other types of constraints that made it very difficult for them to do business as innovators. Moreover, the investment community, the venture capitalists and other people who invest in businesses, they got that signal that Europe wasn't going to be friendly to innovators because they were going to adopt a more precautionary principle-oriented stance. Well, what happened? All the money flocked to America. So the money flocked to America, the investors flocked to America, and the rest, as they say, is history. We benefited marvelously from a permissionless innovation ethos here in the United States. And so today we still see this playing out in other sectors, um, but now other countries and cultures are understanding, well, we need to get with it. We've got new exciting things like driverless cars and drones coming down the road. And so other countries are trying to understand, like, how do we take that approach with regards to those new technologies so we don't get left behind and get our butts kicked like we did in the digital revolution or the first round of the sort of web wars. And that's why these policy ideas, permissionless innovation versus the cautionary principle, matter. This is not some esoteric abstract thing. This is real world policy and real world economics meeting. And the result is a massive digital economy driven by the United States, firms headquartered in the United States, whereas Europe was largely left behind. Can you give us an example of when in the United States um, any sort of innovation has been kind of, I don't know, tramped down, like stopped by regulators out of this precautionary principle Sure, absolutely. In fact, um, as I just mentioned, in the in thinking about going forward, which technologies will become important? Um, I, I mentioned drones and driverless cars. Let's just talk about drones for a second. I mean, um, you know, uh, otherwise known as unmanned aerial vehicles, but drones for short. There could be enormously innovative things done with drones, from delivering medical supplies to people to something as mundane as delivering groceries. Um, uh, it could be used to monitor and you know fires or help. Uh, drones have been used to find missing people and missing pets. Uh, this is exciting. These these new technologies are not just toys. They could be life saving innovations and certainly could also improve our lives in other ways from delivery services to whatever else. Okay, so what's happening right now? Well, what's happening, unfortunately, is the United States has taken a very heavy-handed approach to drones and their regulation. We have adopted a, a much more precautionary principle-oriented policy through our federal regulatory system for flying things, which is basically run by the Federal Aviation Administration. And the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA for short, is very, very heavy-handed, top-down, command and control and orientation. It's very much thou shall not. You have to get a permission slip to do anything in the air. 
And so what has happened? America's leading drone innovators, in many cases, have gone overseas to test their drone delivery services. They've gone to Canada. They've gone to Australia. They've gone to even the United Kingdom. And some of the most exciting things that have been happening have been happening over there or even in like Africa or in Asian countries where it's already the case that important medicines and like blood are being delivered by drones in sub-Sahara Africa or in remote Asian islands. Why isn't that happening in the United States? That should be. It's like in many cases our companies that are doing a lot of those innovations. So this is where we're getting innovation culture wrong in America. And so even though we won in like the internet web wars, as I call them, we might lose the drone wars and lose an important sector as a result. In your new book, Evasive Entrepreneurship, you kind of talk about that, if I'm not mistaken. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. I read a bunch of your stuff like all at once. So, you know, <laughs> but what is the difference between technology being born in chains versus being born in freedom? Yeah. So I use this term uh, throughout my work. Uh, I use the term born in regulatory captivity versus uh, uh, born free. And what I mean by technologies that are born free versus born in regulatory captivity is that a lot of technologies just get lucky. They come up, they come up upon us so quickly that they surprise us and they're kind of so new and different that they're not constrained by an earlier regulatory regime, like a body of laws and policies that govern some previous technology. So that was kind of the internet, not entirely, but kind of the internet. It's certainly the case for something like 3D printers or virtual reality. Those technologies are largely born free because we don't have a 3D printing regulatory commission. We don't have a virtual virtual, uh, reality agency. Our, our law. And so there were, there's some really interesting, exciting things happening there of a permissionless innovation nature. But let's consider something else like drones or driverless cars. Well, at the end of the day, drones are flying things and driverless cars are cars. And we already have a lot of rules and regulations for cars and planes. And so what's happening for them is that they're being sort of, they're born into captivity, regulatory captivity, that is. And that is we're looking at these things, regulators are, and they're trying to pigeonhole them into yesterday's archaic old regulations for earlier industrial era era technologies. The reason that's a bad idea is because it's probably what's called a sort of regulatory mismatch. You probably have rules that aren't ever meant to apply to things like drones or driverless cars, and now we're trying to govern them with them. And that ends up stifling innovation. So we want to try to make sure that whenever possible, a technology is sort of born free, but sometimes law is already there and it just takes over and it just comes to encumber these new technologies. And so this is a fundamental problem for a lot of innovators in the United States and in other countries. And the question is, how do you break that log jam? How do you get technologies out of it? Now, what I say in my books is that in some ways, technology just takes over because of something called the pacing problem. The pacing problem refers to the idea that technology, generally speaking, moves faster than law does these days. And in fact, it's moving much, much faster than laws and regulations. So sometimes when it does, it means that the technology will just make it so that the laws don't make as much of a difference and that we can, in a way, almost evade them. And that's what entrepreneurs are doing, as I talk about in my book. They're becoming evasive. 
they're basically saying, yeah, I'm a drone innovator. I'm a you know driverless car person. But my gosh, all these rules, what are we going to do? We can't get them changed quick enough. We need to innovate. And in some cases, they're just going out there and doing the innovation. And that's what I mean by evasive entrepreneurship. Can you give us examples of evasive entrepreneurs? Like one that my grandparents would know, one that my mom would know, one that my friends would know? Yeah, sure. So, well, let's see. If we, if we want to go way, way back in time, I mean, the, the something that our p- parents would understand. I mean, there's been a lot of evasive entrepreneurialism that's happened in the past in the field of agriculture and food. I mean, there's a lot of rules and regulations governing food and agriculture in this country and most others. But there's a lot of people that just go ahead and grow their own garden in their backyard and give it to their friends or sell it at a local market without regard, regard to what the rules say. So evasive entrepreneurialism can be something as mundane as just like homegrown foods. And that still happens today. It's, it's what's called the cottage food industry. People just sort of making interesting things in their own kitchens and homes and then like either giving them away or selling them locally. So that still happens today. And that's a form of evasive entrepreneurialism. Something more recent that I think is really a powerful example of evasive entrepreneurialism that I spent a lot of time on in my book and that, that you and many of us are familiar with who are, are living in uh, more urbanized areas is the sharing economy and specifically ride sharing. And so if you think back to about 2010, we certainly had lots of taxis and limos that we could rent. But the reality was, is that especially with taxis, they weren't all that pleasant. The The quality was poor. Um, the prices were generally kind of high, even if they were regulated. Uh, and competition was non-existent. You basically had a very heavily regulated sort of cartelistic arrangement in most cities for taxis because of really onerous, burdensome licensing rules. And for the longest time, I'm talking like 60, 70 years, we tried to change all of this. And people like myself, your mom, and others have fought in the public policy world to get licensing laws changed for taxis and other sectors. We never got anywhere. What happened? In 2010, Uber came along and then Lyft came along and a lot of other ride-sharing companies, and everything changed almost literally overnight. Why? Because those companies utilized the power of new decentralized platforms and smartphone applications to give the public the ability to utilize a new service, even though the law was unclear on it, or maybe was clear, and said, you're not supposed to do this. Well, that's evasive entrepreneurialism in action. Basically, those companies took advantage of those new technological platforms and capabilities to give us more choice and competition, and we ate it up. We loved it, and there's no going back. And so you can ask yourself this question from a moral or ethical perspective. Was it okay that Uber and Lyft and others essentially evaded the law? And when I ask that question to law students or philosophy students, I always get really anguished answers. They're like, well, I'm glad we have these new choices, but yeah, they, they shouldn't they shouldn't break the law. And I'm like, so you're saying they should have just played the traditional game of politics and like tried their best to change the law. Well, guess what? They would have not gotten anywhere. That's precisely why Uber and Lyft didn't go that route. They decided instead to use technological capabilities to give us choices. We ate them up. We loved it. And then policy and regulation changed to accommodate them. And so it's an interesting question. Is it okay now that we have more choice and competition because of evasive entrepreneurialism? <laughs> so that's what my book's in big, uh, large part about. And I mean, you're not recommending that people go and try to break the law or anything. 
Right? They should first try to change the law through traditional means. That's absolutely always the first thing that anybody who wants to innovate should do. But sometimes innovation will be butting up against a body of just unmovable law and regulation, and there's no chance for it to happen. And so it's not just Uber and Lyft. I mean, obviously, Airbnb did this with room rentals. A lot of what Airbnb was doing was sort of on the borderline of being legal, and they tried to get hotel laws changed to accommodate them, and they got nowhere. And then finally, they just started renting out properties. And then all of a sudden, it was accepted, and laws changed for the better to allow it. And I could go on and on and on. And in my book, I do. In chapter two of my book, I have 10 major case studies of this happening in a variety of sectors, from things like Bitcoin and blockchain to, again, food entrepreneurialism to even medical innovation. I mean, during our current COVID crisis and the lockdown that it followed, a lot of people looked around and said, how can I help alleviate the problems we're seeing in this crisis? And they started trying to do simple things like, geez, we got a shortage of hand sanitizers. Maybe I can help make some because I know how to do that. Or we've got a shortage of hand uh, of uh, face masks. Maybe I can sew some of those in my own home. Or, oh, we need more uh, ventilator breathing systems in, in hospitals. Oh, I've got 3D printers and I can help make spare parts and maybe help fabricate things. Well, guess what? All three of those things are flatly illegal. Illegal under current law. Should all of those people who wanted to help during COVID waited until the Food and Drug Administration or some other regulatory body gave them a blessing to move forward, or should they have gone and done the common sense thing and helped? Well, my answer is pretty straightforward. They should have helped, and they did. They did. Common sense prevailed. And that's really what my book is all about. It's about common sense government, getting government recalibrated to be in line with common sense and the consent of the government. Because what innovation is doing, I argue, is challenging laws when they just seek to make any sense, when they defy basic common sense of saying, like, shouldn't we have more choice and competition in taxis or in hotels? Or shouldn't we be allowed to respond to a public health crisis by doing smart, innovative things to help our, our, our friends and family and, and communities? Yes, yes, and yes, I argue. And innovation's allowing it, and that's a good thing. And so we should recalibrate laws to allow for more of that and only have laws and regulations where the risk is just too great. For example, we don't want just anybody saying, I can do heart surgery for you. <laughs> Come into my house. That should absolutely still be regulated quite heavily. We need to have a sensible balance about which risks require precautionary regulation. Making simple hand sanitizers and face masks probably don't reach that standard. And that's where innovation is breaking the logjam that we couldn't break through advocate, advocate, uh, advocating for policy change. And even even if some people still don't think it's okay to be breaking the law or doing something illegal by having hand sanitizer or or by making hand sanitizer or face masks or something like that, I don't think anyone could really argue that it didn't help in some way. Right. Because yeah. yeah, go ahead. Just because it did. Like there is no way how that could that that could like hurt anyone. And if anything it just I don't know. I it's just Yeah, it, it it's mind-boggling, isn't it? I mean it's very strange, but then again, it, it's easy for us to say that now because we live through the experience. 
And see, that's what's interesting about these case studies I go through in the book is that there's this interesting morality play going on about like, should it be legal? Is it ethical? And oftentimes we only come to finally get to an answer after it's all happened. And so this is the, I have a section of my book about morality ex ante versus ex post, sort of morality before the fact or morality after the fact. And if you would have asked anybody in 2009, right before Uber and Lyft hit, like if you would have explained what they were about to do before they had even heard of those companies, they would have said, oh, no, no, they should not. They should not offer those. They should go and talk to their legislators and see if they can get the law changed. Well, that's probably the right answer. But unfortunately, that answer, again, was constrained by reality, which was that they were never going to get anywhere because the local regulatory system was basically controlled by a lot of the existing incumbent companies and they weren't going to allow competition. And so when they finally did what they did and gave us choices in competition and we, we learned to love it. Now we're like, well, that's a, yeah, of course they should have done this. It's a great idea. <laughs> well, it's always easier to justify these things after the fact than it is before. And what I say in my book is that I'm unapologetically defending a, some, a, a certain amount of that evasive entrepreneurialism as it's happening or before it happens. I'm willing to defend it because I think it's through these trials and errors that we get more learning, more experience, more progress. And that's not something that everybody's willing to accept. They think instead we can sort of perfectly plan through our own foresight exactly what's good or what's bad. No, sometimes you only know by allowing the trials to happen. The real question is, which experiments can we just absolutely not allow to happen? I'll give you some examples of ones we can't. We already have plenty of laws and regulations, as we should, for certain types of like firearms and more extreme. We don't allow people to roll down Main Street in a tank or carry a surface to air missile or a bazooka on their shoulder. Right? <laughs> that would result in unparalleled death and destruction by even one use of the thing. We should ban that. We should disallow it. More concretely, we don't allow pe people to possess uranium or really harmful types of minerals or chemicals that could hurt them or many, many other people in their community, and so on and so forth. And there are even interesting questions of things like, let's talk about genetic testing and editing. I mean, you've probably heard of 23andMe, and 23andMe allows you to do a genetic test by mail and learn more about your, your genetics and, and your, uh, your, your, your family history. Well, that company actually tried to put that product on the market and did without getting the explicit blessing of the Food and Drug Administration. And all of a sudden, the FDA got angry with them and said, you need to come talk to us. You need to get permission before you do this. They didn't, and they got a cease and desist notice slapped on them, and they, were, they had to take their product off the market for 18 months. Well, why? Well, it was because testing your genetics is something that could entail some risks, especially if you took action based on what you find out about your genetic code. And so 23andMe had to come back and reapply for permission to do that. Now, I'm sitting on the fence on that one myself. I think 23andMe should have been allowed to probably go out and offer these tests. But they probably should have also talked to the regulators about their downsides and the risks so that they did not do anything that could have hurt people. So there are these tough cases in the middle like that one. And I'm kind of torn about that, but I admit that in my book. And I say we can come up with a better governance model for how to deal with problems like that without completely derailing the important innovation underneath them. Because let's, let's be clear, genetic testing is a marvelous technology. It's an important one that we can learn more about our genetic code. I want that on the market. 
but it's probably not going to be pure permissionless innovation. But it certainly shouldn't also be pure precautionary principle. But it should lean more towards permissionlessness, I argue. Well, yeah, because especially like if you think about it, okay, so maybe someone will do something risky because of what they found out from 23andMe. But what if it saves someone's life? Like what if someone finds out they're more likely to get some certain sort of cancer or like something because of sun exposure or something crazy like that? I don't know. No, that's a perfect example. That you're, what you're saying goes back to my initial point, which is what's wrong with the precautionary principle, which is to reiterate, if you spend all your time, you know, worrying about hypothetical worst case scenarios and the base public policy on worst case scenarios, then you don't get any best case scenarios. <laughs> You've got to have the trial and error. You've got to have the experiments. 23Me offers us the ability to do some of that. And yes, there certainly would have been some people who would have seen their genetic tests or, or results. And they would have done something stupid. And this is a debate we've had in, in medical science for many, many years. Should we have more mammographies? Should we have more uh, various types of cancer screenings? Some people say, absolutely, yes, we should. And I know if you have cancer and do something about it. Other, other doctors say no, because people will take rash action and too quickly do something foolish because of what they're learning about themselves. Well, that's a very paternalistic argument, right? We should be denied information about ourselves because we might act stupidly based on that information. I'm sorry. There's got to be a better way. And the better way there is to allow people to get more information about themselves, their bodies, their health, and then consult with others about best actions. And you can still have regulations governing the actions based upon your genetic history. And so there still will be rules and regulations governing the practice of medicine and medical science. But if ever there was a case or an area where we need a little bit more permissionless innovation, it's in the field of health and medicine, where our Food and Drug Administration and other regulatory agencies hold back a lot of important types of progress. And in fact, I should note, I talk about this in my book, Europe which was on the losing side of the internet wars because it was so precautionary, on things like food and drug and pharmaceutical approvals, they're actually ahead of America. They actually do a better job on that front. They actually have a little bit more of a permissionless, not permissionless, but a more flexible regulatory approach. But in the United States, we have an extraordinary precautionary approach to drugs, pharmaceuticals, and medical devices. And again, evasive entrepreneurialism is challenging that. I've, I've been to events, for example, where people have used 3D printers and open source blueprints to, to instantly make hands and arms for children with limb deficiencies. And on the spot, they could fabricate them to the child's desires. So I literally saw kids in the John Hopkins University Hospital event one weekend go up to a, a maker of these hands and arms and say, could I get a hand that looks like Iron Man's hand or Wolverine's claw? And they would, all of a sudden, these volunteers would get their 3D printer out and a blueprint, and they'd make it for them on the spot for free. Technically, what that volunteer did was illegal because it's a medical device. And yet, who's going to deny that child the hand or the limb of their dreams, right? That's a great debate. And I argued in my work when I got back from that and I wrote about it, I said, you know, we should allow for a little bit more of this, but we should also have some guidelines, we should probably have some best practices for people who use open source blueprints and 3D printers to make hands and arms for kids. 
and we should make, make sure that they do it according to some standardly accepting, accepted principles or practices. And that's ultimately what the FDA did to their credit. They finally said, look, we can't stop this tsunami of change. A lot of people are using these platforms, these technologies to help kids. And it's a good thing. It's a great thing. I've never seen so many smiling kids in my life as that weekend at that hospital. And the FDA just knew there was no way they could stop that, nor should they. And so they came up with some best practices to say, like, look, if you're going to use 3D printers to do this sort of thing, here's what you should watch out for. And oh, by the way, they said, for example, just to give one example of a guideline, they said, if you're going to make 3D printed feet or legs, you have to be far, far more careful because that's where there's more danger, of course, right? Because if you make a, a defective mm -hmm. foot or a leg, somebody could fall down the stairs and die. But a defective hand or arm is probably not as risky. And so they had stronger guidelines for like making 3D printed feet and and legs and said, you really should come talk to us about doing that under a traditional regulatory system. So that's an example of how regulators can be more flexible, should be more flexible. And hopefully we can have that going forward on a lot of other areas so that permissionless innovation can blossom across the board in the United States and in the world. That's beautiful. I don't know how else to explain it, but that is just that's so cool. I'm really excited to see where innovation takes us. So finally, what is something that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Hmm. It's a tough call, but I guess there was a time in my life, um, I'm not going to get into religion because <laughs> my, my views have changed there, but I, I clearly at one point in my life believed that politics could probably unlock more solutions to hard problems in this world than I do today. I've become very skeptical that policy change can really move the needle much in terms of human progress. It's not to say government can't pass laws or create programs that help us. I'm a libertarian, but I'm a libertarian who understands that some government helps. But boy, oh boy, more of it fails. And it's just something that I, when I was young, I think I was naive and thought that good intentions mattered a lot more than they actually do in reality. So I guess the thing that's changed more than anything else is I used to believe good intentions had value in and of themselves. And now it's results that I know is what really matter. Good intentions can only get you so far in this world. Yeah, I like that. And I mean, something I've been thinking about a lot is the fact that there is a reason why innovators don't work in government. <laughs> that, like, the problem solving usually happens outside of government. So I don't know. That's just what I've been thinking about. Well, I think you're um, right about that. And I hope that we can convince more innovators to work with government, though, and try to get them to think more innovatively about public policy. That would be my hope. To end yeah. on a positive note is just that both sides can open up their minds a little bit to working together to try to create greater horizons for innovation going forward. Well, thank you so much, Adam. This was great. It was so inspiring and it was very informative. I can't stress enough how many of you, my listeners, should read his book, Books Plural, because they just they make you think and i don't know it just makes sense also i don't know but thank you so much it's been a pleasure thank you so much juliet i really enjoyed it and i really enjoy your podcast more generally it's wonderful <laughs> thank you sure